Hey friends, welcome to The Ruins, a podcast about the journey of faith. My name is Joseph, and in today's episode, we are joined by Johnny Rashid and talking with him about his book, Jesus Takes a Side. We'll also talk about the future of Christianity, white supremacy, Christian nationalism, the harm of the third way, how much salt you need while cooking, and why bipartisanship in the church doesn't work. Thanks for joining us. Here we go. Well, hello and welcome back, friends. I am so excited because today I get to talk with one of my favorite authors who recently wrote a book that not only literally changed my life, but was the exact book that I needed to read in this exact moment of my life, which we'll talk more about later in the episode. But I am thrilled that Johnny was able to find some time to talk with us. So Johnny, thanks so much for being with us today. So glad to be here, Joseph. Really fun to be here. Well, for listeners who may not know you, I would love for you to just share a little bit about who you are in the world and give us a sense of what it means to be Johnny in this season of your life. Well, I'm Johnny. I use he, him pronouns. Um, pastor of a Circle of Hope for nearly 12 years. Um, da- uh, father to Agatha and Elaine. They're six and nine. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an Egyptian American. My parents immigrated to the United States in the late in the early um, 80s. And I've been in Philadelphia for my whole adult life. I love it here. And yeah, I stay busy by uh, um, reading the newspaper, Yep. Home, home cooking, and you know, spending time with my homies. Yes. Big fan of the cooking that you do. Saw oh, the fun. Instagram. So you follow the food pastor, huh? Yeah, the food pastor. <laughs> uh, absolutely exceptional. So I am a not great cook myself, but I'm very impressed and inspired by you. So just a multifaceted inspiration happening right now. So thank you so much. (laughs) That's very nice to hear. Thank you. Well, Johnny, there is so much that I would love to talk with you about. So maybe let's start with having you tell us a little bit about your early journey of faith. I know you're a pastor and an author and write a lot about faith and religion. I know you lead a community. And so those conversations are things that you engage in every day. So how did you get into pastoral ministry and kind of what was your early ministry experience like? Well, I grew up um, in a fundamentalist uh, household and Christianity was just a part of that. And I grew up um, enculturated as a Christian and I developed an interest and an aptitude for it at a young age. And we joined an evangelical free church and I was just part of the youth group and had some natural um, giftings towards leadership. I was eager to be involved. And, you know, to his credit, my youth pastor, Mark, um, in high school helped disciple me. And even as I became a little bit of a political dissident in terms of, I was in a Republican enclave, right? Super conservative. Mark never tried to change my politics. And I really appreciate that from Pastor Mark, as we called him. Um, and it really uh, helped make me the person that I am in terms of my faith and my theology and even my uh, political viewpoints. So I was really grateful for that. Um, And even at that age, some people had mentioned, hey, you should think about being a pastor. Hey, you're a decent public speaker. Maybe you should do this. And I was like, "Ah, I don't know if I want to do that. I've never heard that before. But then then I I left Lebanon, Pennsylvania and grew disillusioned with Christianity largely because of 
the war in Iraq and the jingoism and the xenophobia and all the evangelical support of it. You know, I remember I was when I was a kid, man, Tom Ridge used to be the governor of Pennsylvania and he became the uh, director of Homeland Security. They made a special office called the Homeland Security Office after 9-11. And then on like Fox News, there used to be a, like a terror alert. Yes. Like it would, there was like colors, right? And I was like telling my friends like, hey, this is weird. This feels like George Orwell. What's happening? And I, I grew disenchanted with what was happening. And then I couldn't, and I got, I grew frustrated with Christians too. And I remember I came to college and I knew I, I, my, my parent, my sister went to Liberty University and I went to Temple University. So Liberty, super conservative kind of place, Temple, just a regular place, right? Yes. And I was like, okay, I'll join the campus ministry. So I went to like this thing called Crosswalk and all these evangelicals are there and I know the songs and it kind of feels good and I'm figuring out my life, but I'm like, I don't really mess with these people. And then I couldn't really jive. I couldn't figure out how I was going to be authentic to myself and my ideas and my beliefs and also be a part of a conservative evangelical community. I found Circle of Hope, the church that I'm now a pastor at, and I, I noticed their very vocal opposition to the war in Iraq. And I was like, hey, I can get down with these people. And eventually I became a part of the community and that helps me help form my faith. And eventually I became a pastor in this community too. Wow. So that's, that's how the process went. Well, I've heard you briefly talk about this, but I would love to hear more about how you grew into the faith that you currently have today. I know you've talked about on the Resist and Restore podcast, which I love listening to. Uh, oh, we'll good. Link, yeah, we'll link that in the show notes for sure because it's such a helpful resource. But I, you've mentioned a few times a little bit about your story of kind of your process of beginning to both realize and then practice a faith, both personally and at Circle of Hope in, in the ways that you show up in leadership that was really adamant about centering the marginalized and the oppressed, both in theology and in ministry praxis. So I would love for you to just share a little bit about kind of what that journey was like for you. I know you mentioned Circle of Hope being like, man, 2004, we're already having these conversations. Um, so what was that like for you as you began to enter into that process as a pastor? Well, what's interesting, I mean, I'm, this is probably the first, you're going to get some original content here because this is the first time I'm making this connection. But when I first joined Circle of Hope, 2004, four, 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 2004, 2005, I was seeing my, the principles that I held closely to myself expressed in the church. But I also attended um, Temple University at the time, and I was getting uh, their history, their political science, their sociology classes. And, and that was helping to shape my mind too. And so I became fervently anti-racist then. I became suspicious of capitalism and war then while I was at Temple. And so this was happening at Temple. And then this other thing was happening at Circle and they were working together. And I was trying to adapt who I was learning to be here in this ministerial context. And there was always a translation happening. And in some ways, something was lost in that translation. Hmm. Um, similarly, the same that when I went to seminary, the same thing happened. I was getting, I was learning about the Bible and theology, but also mainly liberation theology. So I'm reading James Cohn, I'm reading, who's a black liberation yep. theologian, and I'm reading uh, Dolores Williams, who's a womanist, and Rosemary Radford Ruther, who's a, uh, a feminist um, thinker. And, 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 and I'm getting all these ideas. 
and, and I'm loving them. I'm driving with them. It feels really good. And, and I'm talking to my friends about it and, and furthering my education. And then again, translating it into the context of Circle of Hope. And so I kept this intellectual side of me, which spoke to me personally, but I just liked the ideas. And I was trying to make it cohesive with Circle of Hope and what we were doing. So that was the translation work that I was doing. Here's this, and here's how you're going to translate it. When that work failed, when, it, when I could no longer translate it, was when my embodied and bodily experience didn't allow for that translation. Hmm. So the most distinct moment, and I opened the book with it, the most distinct moment was January 2017 when Donald Trump was inaugurated. And then we're having a love feast and I'm supposed to give communion. And then there's kids that look like me and my kids behind gates at O'Hare and also PHL, Philadelphia International Airport. Our people run to go protest at the airport. I'm in tears. I don't know what to do. I can't believe this is happening, but I can believe it because Donald Trump said he would do it. Yes. And at that point, all of my education but also all of my passion and interests kind of came to a head. And I said, no, I have to be able to make an explicitly political statement here without fear of retribution and without fear of judgment. And so I said, look, I want to offer you these words, but I don't know how to without also acknowledging this horrible thing is happening. And if Jesus indeed saves us, then this is the kind of thing that needs to be undone. You know, how could you say Jesus is resurrected and keep kids behind bars, yes. behind gates? The resurrection is meaningless if this is what you're doing. So, so that, that moment caused a culmination of the two worlds. And then little did I know that I was passionate about my education because it was speaking to me as a person. I only knew that it was speaking to me as a person when I experienced it in that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a that's a really interesting moment because I think for people who are like me, who are listening, who are white, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle class, educated, non-disabled, kind of like carry a lot of privilege. One of the reasons, and the reason I know this is because I've had conversations with people about this, it's really hard for a lot of people to have that embodied experience because in their bodies, they're not living oppression or marginalization. And so it's, it's all theory for them. It's all right. ideas. And unless you're kind of oriented towards centering the people who carry these marginalized identities literally in their bodies, it's really hard to make that connection. If it was hard enough for you, you know, it's even more hard for Absolutely. People like me to make that connection of like, wow, this is like our theology, our xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, whatever it looks like. These are having real lived experience or lived consequences in the actual bodies of people that are around us. And until you can make that connection, I'm not sure mm -hmm. if you really have enough motivation to really reevaluate totally. your faith and what you're thinking. Totally, totally agree with you. And so for white, cis, straight men and anybody that's in a powerful social position, we have to kind of submit ourselves to people that um, are harmed yes. by our social position. So like, yeah, I'm I'm a Egyptian, um, bisexual, queer man. I have to, I'm a, but I'm cis, right? So I have to listen to 
women in particular, to find out where I am furthering oppression. Um, it's not enough for me to say, talk about racism and to center that as the main experience. I have to listen yes. further. Yes, that's so important. Well, I want to spend uh, a little bit of time talking about your book, Jesus Takes a Side. There's so much we could unpack. I know I mentioned before, I am a, this is a Jesus Takes a Side Stan podcast. So thank you so much for writing this book. To all of our listeners, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. It is absolutely incredible. There's so much I would love to talk about, so much we could talk about. But for the sake of time, I want to center this conversation on what I know and what you call in the book, The Third Way. I have been in church spaces before where third way is really central to the ethos of the community. This idea that we don't want to take sides. We don't want to cause division. Anyone can believe anything they want. We don't require any sort of alignment theologically. We don't want to get involved in politics or activism or be, become some type of movement-oriented church. And so what happens oftentimes totally. is we, we keep our beliefs quiet. We value unity over uniformity. We don't want to isolate or divide or push people to believe something. And in your book, you talk a lot. You have a whole chapter devoted to the third way and why it doesn't work and why even it's harmful and dangerous. So can you talk to us a little bit about the problem with the third way, why it's dangerous, why does this false unity or what you call bipartisan politics and praxis and theology actually furthers oppression in the church? Well, I'll start with this. When Martin Luther King was leading us in the civil rights movement, he was practicing what some might call a third way. It was nonviolent resistance. It was civil disobedience. It was not armed conflict. And thus, it was an alternative to armed conflict. So if you want to do third way like that, that sounds pretty good. But the problem is Black Lives Matter does that. Our protesters already do that. Martin Luther King revolutionized how we do social action. We're all following largely in Martin's footsteps. Hmm. But instead of seeing our approach as a third way, we see it as one of the poles now. Black Lives Matter is here, and then we have white supremacists here. And so we find a third way between those two. But a third way like that is fake. It doesn't work. You know, People see extreme polarization. That gives them anxiety. And so they try to find a middle ground. They want to be polite. They want to make sure not to offend the Republicans in the room, make sure not to offend the Democrats in the room, as if that's the that's really how we're polarized. But we're not polarized between Democrats and Republicans. We're polarized between individuals and their dignity and people who oppose wow. those individuals and those dignity. So the third way fails because what it tries to do is it tries to marry Somebody who thinks it's okay to kill black people if you're police, someone who thinks it's okay to deport migrants, someone who thinks it's okay to dehumanize LGBTQIA people. And it tries to marry these ideas, not just with ideas that oppose them, opposition to brutality, opposition to deportation, opposition to homophobia, but black people, immigrants, queer people, literally the victims of these ideas. It takes the victim and tries to match them with the perpetrator. It takes the abuse, the, the survivor of abuse and tells them to hang out with their abuser. You know, it tries to marry, it tries to put the lion next to the lamb, hmm. but the lion still has teeth. 
Yes. And still has an appetite and still wants to eat the lamb. That doesn't work. That leads to harm. And we see the results and we see them, especially in the LGBTQIA community. Yes. You look at the teen suicide rate and you know your theology is harmful. This is what it's resulting in. And, 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 and quintessentially where the third way fails is when a church doesn't want to be clear about whether it is affirming or not. It is better to say we're not affirming yes. than it is to bait and switch the person. And Circle of Hope did that for a long time. And I write about, I chronicled this experience about how it worked. And we finally became vocally affirming. That's, that, then, then we could really include queer folks in marriage and ministry and in membership. Um, but if we don't take a side, if we don't make it clear that we're affirming, then we're being deceptive. We're lying. We're not being honest. You know, the third way has become a, uh, a cheap way to, 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 to try to build a bridge, but, but without any authenticity, without mm -hmm. any reality. The third way says your political viewpoints are merely abstract and they don't need to get between us. And so there's such a cost to that. And there's queer people in our congregations that are closeted and that hate themselves because they don't have a way out. And so we need to make it clear that we affirm them so that they might. Yes, absolutely. Yes and amen to that. One of the things that you said that I think is a really important part of this conversation, the third way is having the conversation about power and privilege in spaces where people are leading. And I think that mm. that is one of one of the ways that I've seen the breakdown of the third way and why it's been so problematic to me is because oftentimes I see the people who are advocating for the third way of, hey, let's just all like come to the table. It doesn't matter if you're like, if you affirm or you don't affirm LGBTQ plus people, if you're comfortable saying Black Lives Matter, if you're not comfortable saying whatever it looks like, we're centered on Jesus. We value unity over uniformity. And oftentimes the people who are advocating for that are the most privileged and powerful people in society. And so they actually don't need to take a side because it doesn't affect them at all because they're, they're cis and they're heterosexual or whatever. And so they're like, hey, if you want to affirm and celebrate and honor the dignity of LGBTQ plus people in the church, awesome. But if you're not quite there on the journey, if you still think totally, that, you know, that this or that, like you're homophobic, transphobic, like that's okay. We still want to go on that journey with you. I just, I don't see how that can be faithful to the way of Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus was doing in the world. Totally agree. Is that totally something agree. that you experienced at Circle of Hope when you were kind of like making this transition of being more clear and more consistent about what you were saying? Did you have people who were like, uh, I can't really get there. You're dividing me. I, I want to go totally. on a slow journey. Like, what was that like for you in leadership? We had plenty of people resist us. We had plenty of people say, what about me? There's no room for me. They were interested in making room for their viewpoints and not making room for queer people. They were making wow. interested in making room for people who disagreed, but not queer people. So many of our people made it abstract. So many of our people made it inconsequential. Let's have 
tolerance for different ideas. I'm saying let's have tolerance for people. Wow. That's what we should do. There's no use in having political pluralism when it comes at the expense of the dignity of people. It is okay to have different ideas as long as our ends are the same. Yes. Then we can collaborate, then we can share, then we can learn from each other. All that's sweet. But if we want to feed everybody, let's find out how we can do that. There's a lot of ways to do it. But if you think it's okay to leave some people unfed, then I don't want that idea infecting us. So that's, that's, the, that's, that's what worked. That's what was working out with us. But people, yes, of course, they disagreed and they had a lot of issues. You know? And I, I am living proof, Joseph, that this kind of theology keeps people closeted. It keeps people away. I didn't come out as bisexual or demisexual until Circle of Hope was affirming. Hmm. And I didn't even know that this was a part of my lived experience. Now, some of my friends would observe it and say, yeah, this isn't surprising. We knew, but I kept it from myself until it was safe for me to come out. And I just think that's the experience all over the place. Yes. And I'm sure that happens so often when people are in a space where it is clear that they are centered in the conversation, they right. feel the freedom to be authentic to who they actually are, and their bodies even are responding to the sa- the totally. theological safety in a community that has like real consequences on how they show up in the world. Absolutely, yeah. Wow. Well, there's again so much we could talk about the book. Again, go and get it. Read it for yourself. It is amazing. But I would like to kind of take the second half of this conversation and talk about the future of Christianity in the way of Jesus. That is something that I am super, super passionate about. It is an interest of mine. It's a hobby of mine. It's a vocation of mine. Something that I love doing is thinking about what's next on the horizon for faith and Christianity in the way of Jesus. And I know because you're a pastor, you're in leadership at a community, uh, again, those are conversations that you're having a lot. So I'd just love to get kind of your thoughts on a few of these things. But where do we go from here as Christians? What should we be prioritizing, fighting against, working towards in the church? I know there's so much chaos in the world with Christian nationalism and white supremacy and and conservative politics. And we're just seeing an onslaught every single week, it seems like, of of more reasons why people should not be Christians and so many people are leaving the faith. And and that's a totally real experience for so many people and a valid response to a lot of things. But what do we do about that? What should we be thinking about? How should we be leading? What should we be prioritizing in our communities? Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about maybe some su- success that you're seeing or or things that you guys are thinking about? The major bar for success is how do the marginalized people feel in your community? Do they feel dignified? Do they feel uplifted? Do they feel like they can be themselves? You know, Christianity needs to follow the way of Jesus. And we need to be a movement that liberates and a movement that frees and a movement that um, emancipates a gospel that doesn't liberate and a gospel that doesn't emancipate is not a gospel at all. And so the measure for our work must be our fruit. What is the fruit of our work? And if it's liberated people who can live fully into themselves, now we're cooking, now we're doing something, now it matters. So where we go from here is continuing to free the captives. Make that be your vocation. There's a great temptation in the church right now to try to be politically 
polite, pluralistic, politically quiet. You know, Andy Stanley just came out with a book called Not In It to Win It, How uh, Choosing a Side Sidelines the Church. That is a dominant idea, especially among evangelical men who may be repulsed by the insurrectionists, but not so much as to oppose them with any fervor because they can say they're wrong, but also this other group is wrong. Like the other day I heard someone say, Greg Boyd told me that as bad as the right is, the left is as bad. When Brian Zahn says the uh, conservative fundamentalists are as bad as the progressive fundamentalists. First of all, he invented an idea, progressive fundamentalists, that doesn't even exist. But the idea that both sides are as bad as each other only comes from a privileged position. Yes. So one side, yeah, sure, they hate queer people, they hate black people, they hate people of color, and they want to torture us. But you should see the other side. Sometimes they say things that hurts my feelings and makes me feel bad about maybe being racist or homophobic. And really, it's the same thing. Like, sure, these people are oppressing individuals, but sometimes this other group makes me feel like I'm not so important anymore, like I've made a mistake. And so that kind of like ego-driven nonsense that, that equates the two is, is, uh, is absurd. Yeah. And that is a strong direction in the church right now. And it is happening among people specifically, Joseph, who are not LGBT affirming. Yes. That is where, the, that is where the, the, the challenge is. The challenge is, that's, that's the crux of the issue. Now, some people will tolerate people that are sexist and complementarian, don't want to include women. I think that is lessening, at least I hope it is. Some people, very rarely, but more and more people will um, oppose racism vocally. You know, Russell Moore of the formerly of the Southern Baptists. Now he's just doing his own thing. You know, oppose Donald Trump vocally yeah, totally. in, a, in an editor in, in yep. many editorials that he wrote. You know, um, so did a lot of prominent evangelicals. And so they did this thing. But then when it comes to queer inclusion, they're a little bit hesitant. When you hear something about progressives being fundamentalists or being strict and something about conservatives being the same, almost always in Christian community, it's about LGBT inclusion. And so the way to move, the only way to move as a church is to focus on the people that we've harmed the most systemically. Most of us know that it's important for us to liberate BIPOC. Most of us know it's important for us to include women as equals, but not enough of us know that we need to do the same for LGBTQIA people. It is still far too normative in the church to be homophobic. And so that's really where the issue is. That's, that's what we should be prioritizing and fighting against homophobia in the church. And that's just a huge part. It's woven into the fabric of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring up, Brian Zahn, because I I think you might have mentioned this in the book, but this is kind of even going back to the third way, the like ridiculousness of the idea. I remember when he tweeted a while ago about like celebrating the fact that in their church they have like ICE agents and they have undocumented immigrants at the same time in the same place. And it's just like, wow, look at us, like look at the unity. And it's just like I that mentality. People may not go that far, but that idea that like we don't have to agree on every issue, that's just like the blinders by which everybody and like you said, privileged people just fall back into these conversations of, well, yeah, I mean, if you personally want to go to like a pro-choice rally and like protest the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that's fine for you. 
we would never do that as a community or we would never say what we think <laughs> from the front because that's going to isolate people in our community who may be pro-life or maybe conservative. And, and we want to be on the journey with people. And I guess I understand that mentality, but I just don't see that as being a fruitful or faithful way to serve the most marginalized people in our community. It's not. If you focus on making white people anti-racist, you're going to miss the people of color in the community. Lift them up and make them, center them. Don't make the work just um, converting racists to not yes. be racist. That's yes. important work. That cannot be the center of our work because there is no place for us then. What about me? What about others that are victims of this? Why should we have to wait for these people to change as the central aspect of your ministry? Don't organize around them. It's okay to pastor them and disciple them individually. They're going to need that. They're going to need special care. But don't make that the center of your meeting. If you're wondering how to make your church safe, what you need to do is elevate the voices of the marginalized. This is clear in Paul. A lot of people think that they'll say the number one critique I get of the book is that this is divisive. This is going to divide congregations. You know, my viewpoint is this, that what is divisive is racism is divisive. Homophobia is divisive. Ableism is divisive. And to avoid dissension in the community, Paul says, lift up the voices of the weaker members of the body, people who are deemed weaker, people who are deemed less respectable, lift up their voices. And then your community will be united. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, of course, that's the vision. But again, when you are in centering your ministry experience on helping racist people to be a little bit less racist, yeah, of course, you're not going to have a future in being a safe space for marginalized people because they're never going to be the point. And that's one of the conversations that I've had so many, so many times with, with people here in Spokane, which is where I live, is having conversations about church and faith and being like, if you do not affirm LGBTQ plus people, there are a hundred churches that you can go to and feel safe and have that mentality and idea as supported and you will be served really well as an Mm -hmm. anti-LGBTQ plus person in a lot of other churches. But how many of our communities here in this city are clearly, boldly, consistently, loudly LGBTQ plus affirming, that number is ridiculously small here in Spokane. And I'm always wanting so badly for people, I'll just say in my community, because that's all I can speak for, but in my community here in Spokane to just understand the weight and the reality of the situation cannot stand an apathetic third way unity-driven mentality and faith. And that's why I'm so passionate about this conversation, the future of the way of Jesus, because there are so many people who I think, like you said, want that from a community, but just unless you see it on social media, unless you see it on a website, honestly, it's not their responsibility to risk vulnerability and harm in order to like roll the dice as to whether or not this is going to be a safe community for them. And that's just like, yeah, that's totally. something I think about all the time. And it's, 
I don't know what to do about it, but I'm trying. You're fighting the good fight, Joseph. You're fighting the good fight. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, for someone listening today who has kind of all but given up on Christianity because of everything they see in Christian nationalism and conservative politics and the Supreme Court and conservative white evangelicalism and all the things who feel like they're kind of at the end of their rope. They're, maybe they're in a, a town or a city or a community where there's not spaces where they can have these conversations and, and be a part of a community that's like passionate about this. They're feeling discouraged. They're feeling lonely, feeling isolated. What encouragement or advice would you give that person? A pastoral word. If they've given up entirely on the faith, I want to take responsibility for that as a Christian and say, I understand. Hmm. Jesus says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, sometimes he means children, but other times he means people who are weak in faith. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it is better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and to be thrown into the Sea of Galilee than the judgment that awaits you. And so salvation is here for those who have fallen away Hmm. um, because of Christians. I think that God will be gracious. And ultimately, I mean, I, I feel like I'm a universalist. So yeah. Amen. I think we're all going to be redeemed. Yeah. But, I, but I do want to say that God will showcase extra grace for people that fell away because of that. So in no way do I feel like someone who's been harmed by the church and needs to leave, needs to get back in for their own salvation. Mm. So that's one thing. Yes. I just want to say that clearly. But if you're still grasping, if you're still holding on, I remember that feeling too, you know? War in Iraq, not a lot of Christians doing it. George W. Bush, super evangelical, don't know what to do. You might feel the same way. 85% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2020, a 3% point increase from 2016. So what the hell's going on? Like, what can I, what can I do? You know, there's Christian nationalism. Um, there's an insurrection, all these problems. You know, Christians are supporting the pillaging of reproductive health uh, and the potential to get rid of LGBTQIA rights and all sorts of other things. Why am I doing this? Why am I here? You know, my encouragement to you is one, to know that God is on your side, Hmm. to know that God grieves along with you and God suffers along with you, to know that in the Bible consistently, especially in the Old Testament, read the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, Israel's leaders and Israel's people were so often unfaithful and the prophets were alone. The prophets lamented. The prophets grieved. The prophets suffered. And Jesus joins them in that tradition. So if you're a suffering prophet, because you're naming evil around you and in your community, remember the words of Jesus, you know, a prophet is hated in his hometown. Hmm. And so you will be hated too. That's what Jesus says. They hated me first, so they'll hate you. Sometimes Christians use this as a justification for their prejudice. You know, they're bigoted, they're racist. Oh, the world hates me. That's persecution. No, 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 no. Persecution is against those who are calling for liberation and freedom and being oppressed, right? It's King Ahab going up to Elijah and say, oh, you're a troubler of Israel, he says, because Ahab is confronting the fact that um, King Ahab has 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 sullied the community of God by uh, fraternizing with God's enemies, right? These, the, the prophets are hated because they call out evil. Um, and you should expect to, for that to happen. When you confront white supremacy, like we have here, when you confront homophobia, you will feel further oppressed. It's not a fun feeling. It's easier, it's tempting to want to um, 
second guess ourselves, not say the things and, and back off, but keep going forward. And then fine. And then don't be afraid to discard, to leave the community. There's other places where you, you, you don't throw pearls before swine. There's other places that will value you. And that's a long process, but don't sacrifice your mental health and your well-being for it. Find communities that embrace you. You're worth being loved. And if it isn't in a Christian community because of where you live, that's okay. Maybe you can find it, you know, but also look for, I mean, what I found is like, even in the worst environments, there are actually online communities that can help us. And so don't discard that either. Don't, 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 don't discard resources around you because you judge them as less than. So that's what I would say. And honestly, if you're processing this and you want to relate more, feel free to talk to me. I'm happy to listen to anybody going through this process and point you to other pastors and other resources and even other churches that might be good for you. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes. And amen. What a good word. Getting emotional myself. Uh, So thank you, Johnny, for that. Well, as we end, I always love to give the last word to whoever I'm speaking with to give literally a little TED talk about anything that you would like to say about any topic and any opinion. Any topic. No rules, no regulations. What are some examples? What have people have talked about? What what have people have said? People in the past have talked about polyamory. They have talked about cooking. They have talked about movies that they just saw. But literally, I mean, sky's the limit here. An interest, a hobby, a spicy take doesn't have to be theologically centered if you don't want to. But I would love for you to give give the people a little insight into the mind of Johnny. Okay, so here's here's the one thing I'm going to say. All right, and you can say multiple things if you want to. It's your time. So if you want to improve your cooking, yes, here's the main thing that you can do to improve your cooking. I'm lasered in right now because my cooking sucks. So I'm listening. Use more salt. Mm. Home cooks don't use a lot because there's been anti-salt propaganda happening. Now, salt is hidden in foods that we eat all the time, like because it's a preservative. So if you eat a lot of processed foods, it's not going to be good for your health because they pack salt in them. But for a home cook, you're not going to put that much salt in your food because it actually works at home in a different way. So don't be afraid to use. Keep tasting until the, until the food tastes like it's supposed to taste. You know, like season your food to bring out its taste. That's what Jesus said were the salts, were the salt of the earth, because we we bring out its flavor, right? That's that's the idea. So here's here's how you can here's what you should do with it. Okay. Um couple ideas for you to to showcase the how how much salt can help things. Eat watermelon. You can actually put salt right on a watermelon, and that's a pretty good thing. But you eat it with feta cheese. If you like feta cheese, which I think is good Ooh. to develop a taste for, watermelon and feta and olive oil and black pepper, that's a nice thing. That's that's a good wow. thing you're doing there. Try that out. It's it's late It's late June, so you're not – I don't know. You're from California? Uh, Washington State. Washington, well, yeah, that's – yeah, Spokane is what you said. Yeah. So I don't know what's what watermelon is like in Washington. It's fine. But in Pennsylvania, we're not going to get good watermelon until the middle of July. So – you know, buy a watermelon, put some olive oil, salt, pepper, and feta cheese on it. And then also do this. Take a piece of, take, take, griddle your bread in, cover it in mayonnaise, and then griddle it on a, like a cast iron until it's yep. crispy in the bottom. 
Okay. Then take heirloom tomatoes and then apply salt, pepper, sugar, and um, cream of tartar. Now that's an ingredient you can get in any supermarket. You could use citric acid. It's a little bit harder to find citric acid, but Jeff Bezos will send it to you if you want. Um, but use cream of tartar and that's going to bring out the flavor of the tomatoes and try that out. That's going to be, that's going to be a delicious sandwich and, 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 and put mayo on both sides, just mayo, salt, pepper, sugar, cream of tartar on the tomatoes and try that. It's going to really improve your food. So that's, that's one thing that I recommend that you do. Now, is this, when you're talking salt, are we like table salt, pink salt, Mediterranean salt, any kind of salt or? Well, all salt is the same. Okay. I just want to say that there's no real value in trying different salts. The reason to do different salts is because of the different textures, right? Table salt is nice in like baking applications, but kosher salt is the main one I use. And there's two main kosher salt varieties. You have Diamond Crystal and you have Morton's Kosher Salt. Now, and by the way, I'm going to make a comment that's completely inappropriate, but I'm going to say it. All right, here's, 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 here is one case. I criticize the news media a lot. The New York Times cooking section didn't want to endorse a salt brand between Diamond Crystal and Morton's because they didn't want to appear to be partisan. However, it is essential when calling for kosher salt to specify which of the main companies you're using because the, the, the volume is different. So half a teaspoon of Morton's is more than half a teaspoon of yes. Diamond Crystal. It's literally more weight, so it's saltier. You need to tell us the brand because the crystals are different sizes. But they can't make a partisan statement, so they ruin the food. They need to take a side. There you go. Another application. Take a side. Exactly. exactly. All salt's the same. I recommend having three salts at home. Table salt is good, but you could also do canning salt. Both of them are canning salts even more fine. So that's quick dissolving. And then have kosher salt, which is your everyday salt. Okay. And get used to measuring it with your fingers. And then also have a finishing salt, we say. So, uh. Maldon is a good example, Florida seal, like this crispy salt that you can put on top of a steak and it kind of is kind of crunchy, you know? I like that that's a lot. My, that's um, my favorite kind of salt, like a good fresh piece of bread, nice creamy thick butter, some of that like salt that's on right. there too. That's beautiful. Ooh, that is a lovely, oh, that's good. That's my favorite kind and of then salt. The, so salt appropriately, but then one more thing to tell you. Don't be afraid to use monosodium glutamate, MSG. Now, there, there, there is a racist prejudice against this ingredient, right? Like my friend told me, I get, um, I get um, Chinese food syndrome because I get a headache every time after I buy takeout. And I'm like, bruh, you drank six beers and ate General So's and then you blame the food for your headache. You know, that's not where it comes from, man. You know? MSG is just from kelp. It's delicious. And some people do have a sensitivity to it, but almost no one does. And it's good for you. It isn't a high, it's not a salt replacement. It's not even that salty. It's just creates savoriness. And so just a little bit, put a little bit in your eggs. It'll be delicious. Put a little bit in your stew. It'll be delicious. And then when you're stir frying, use MSG, use salt, use sugar, have those right next to you as you're stir frying food. It's going to bring out flavor. Keep tasting your food. So those are the things I recommend about cooking. Salt and MSG. Man, so much good content, advice, things to press into. Salt. Wow. That's Amazing. right. Use enough salt. Amazing. Well, 
food pastor and also pastor pastor Johnny. Thank you so much for your time. This was a wildly helpful conversation, both thinking about faith and thinking about cooking. Uh, it was amazing to get to talk with you, be a part of what you're doing in the world. So thank you so much for being here. As we close, for listeners who want to stay up to date on what you're doing, what are some of the best ways for them to support you or follow you? Any other uh, work or projects you want to plug as we close? Yeah, sure. Go to johnnyrashid.com. You can read my blog there. If you go at Johnny Rashid on Instagram and Twitter, you can follow me at Food Pastor is where I cook. And then I just wrote an article for the Philly Voice about um, my viewpoint about abortion, which I don't consider to be a murder. And I think that's a politically convenient way to describe it. So give that a shot. Um, yeah. And just keep following me. It's good to connect with you. Email me. Um, also Johnny Rashid at gmail.com. That's how you'll get a hold of me. Happy to talk to you more. Thanks a lot, Joseph, for this opportunity. Absolutely. Well, be sure to support the work that Johnny is doing. Go by Jesus Takes a Side. Follow him on social media. Subscribe to the Resist and Restore podcast. Get plugged into all the stuff he's up to in the world. Links to all of that will be in the show notes below. If this is your first time listening, this podcast is hosted by me and Nicole. We are bivocational pastors and leaders living and working here on the unceded land of the Spokane tribe. We keep this podcast sponsor and ad-free as an act of justice. So if you're able to become a Patreon member and support the work we're doing, we'd love to invite you to do so by visiting our Patreon page below. This episode was written, produced, and edited by us, Joseph and Nicole. Grace and peace to all of you. We love you, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.